You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. Our reading this morning is a few selections from Henry David Thoreau's book, Walden. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. I learned this at least by my experiment that if one advances confidently in the direction of their dreams and endeavors to live the life which they have imagined, they will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. If the day and the night are such that you greet them with joy and life emits a fragrance like flowers and sweet scented herbs, is more elastic, more starry, more immortal. That is your success. All nature is your congratulation and you have cause momentarily to bless yourself The greatest gains and values are farthest from being appreciated. We easily come to doubt if they exist. We soon forget them. They are the highest reality. Perhaps the facts most astounding and most real are never communicated by man to man. The true harvest of my daily life is somewhat as intangible and indescribable as the tints of morning or evening. It is a little stardust caught, a segment of the rainbow which I have clutched. We must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake not by mechanical aids, but by an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us even in our soundest sleep. I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of human beings to elevate their lives by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue, and so to make a few objects beautiful, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do, to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of arts. Who would say they know something about the transcendentalists? Who likes the transcendentalists, or at least the idea of them? What did they believe? Any ideas? (laughs) Now, when I was in high school, I fell deeply, madly in love with the transcendentalists. 
in a very impactful way. I had an English teacher who made them come alive, and it was also at the time that the Unitarian Church that I was a part of outside of Chicago started digging into Unitarian and Universalist history for the whole congregation. The minister at the time was, in many ways, a transcendentalist himself. I remember thinking when learning about Walden Pond and, as they were called, the Oracles of Concord, one day I will live there. And then it happened. A poor kid from Chicago living in the hub of transcendentalism. When I moved to Concord, Massachusetts to serve First Parish Concord as a ministerial resident, which is a fancy term for intern minister, I lived in the former coachman's house for the whole town. The coachman would have been the primary source of transportation for the most well-known citizens of the town. The Emerson family, the Hawthorns, the Alcotts, and so on and so on. The minister, the parish minister. It was a four-room, two-story home with a mud basement. And the second floor, I had to crouch down this low to walk around. Now I was charmed by New England living. How the winter was like those idyllic postcards you see of wintertime. It was something powerful for me to walk down the street and not far away visit the graves of Emerson, Thoreau, Louise May Alcott, and so on and so forth. It was charming to live in a building that was much older than much of our history as a country. Except in the spring, when I discovered my mud basement floor one morning was inexplicably buzzing, only to realize it was a mass of bees emerging from the mud. The charm faded then. <laughs> now, the bees aside, I'd wager that one of our major holy sites, if you want to use that term as Unitarian Universalists, is Walden Pond, and by extension, the town of Concord, Massachusetts. So much of our history came alive right there. On days off, I would step outside of the coachman's house and start walking down Lexington Road toward the Cambridge Turnpike. A few houses down from mine was Ralph Waldo Emerson's home. Across from his house, the woods began. And if you walked across a small field, you would reach a path leading into the woods. If you ventured on, you'd end up at Walden Pond in about half an hour. And if you let yourself get lost, lucky you, it'd be an hour or two later. Now, Walden Pond is what you would expect. During prime tourist season, it is crawling with people. People building stone cairns, walking around the pond, busloads of people taking photos, locals sitting on a very tiny beach. Yes, there's a beach at Walden Pond. People reading Henry David Thoreau, or if you live in Concord, Henry David Thoreau's book, Walden, aloud to each other. Now, it is something to visit the site of his cabin the bean field where he grew his food, and to just be there, especially in the colder autumn and winter months when the crowds are fewer and far between. I love the transcendentalists, I really do. Their beliefs were varied and peculiar at times, but their motive is at the heart of what we do here today as Unitarian Universalists, the immortal question from Emerson, why can't we have an original relation to the universe? Now, if you've been around me long enough, you know I like to dig into the humanity of those we'd like to call Unitarian Universalist saints, or as close to saints as we can get. Did you know 
Louisa May Alcott was an early advocate of women's long distance running. <laughs> she defied everyone that said it was unladylike and ran and ran and ran, which makes her just that much more amazing. Emerson was as introverted as they get and had a very peculiar habit of opening the graves of his deceased loved ones years after they died. And Henry David Thoreau, living in isolation at Walden Pond, would often walk into town to drink pints at the tavern and come home with goodie baskets from his mom. Very Spartan-like in his words. <laughs> the story of Walden Pond and Henry David Thoreau is still to this day often depicted as a rugged individualist and nature lover, striking out to survive on his own to, as he wrote, front only the essential facts of life, including pints of beer. <laughs> but I think it's important to know the real story of Walden Pond. For me, it doesn't destroy the good that comes out of the story we often tell, but it shakes up the myth just a bit. Another piece of the story is that Thoreau was not alone in the woods by Walden Pond. Not at all. Yes, friends visited him. He would visit town often. It wasn't very far. I walked the path myself several times. But there were several permanent residents of Walden Woods alongside him, namely freed and fugitive slaves. When we talk about Walden Pond, it's important to remember that in the words of author Elise Lemire, who wrote the book Black Walden, she writes, Walden was a black space before it was ever a green space. Before Thoreau ever thought of building his cabin, former slaves lived on the land, growing beans like he did, one of the few things that readily grow in those woods, and fronting only the essential facts of life. Gives a new meaning to that phrase. Though in their case, the freed and fugitive slaves were not allowed to go to the tavern for pints or get goodie baskets to bring home. Thoreau doesn't go into much detail about the people he lived close to, but he does mention some of the more well-known residents of Walden Woods and Pond. There's Zilpa, who doesn't have a last name, a freed slave who made bolts of linen cloth for the residents of Concord. It is said the land that she was given was so small in her freedom, her house was not only her living quarters, but it was also her workspace, her barn, her chicken coop. She shared her home with all of her animals. She is said to have lived a very hard life, having had her home burned to the ground by former British prisoners from the War of 1812, where all of her animals perished. She would often be seen muttering to herself or yelling at people across the woods, we are all bones, bones. There was Brister Freeman, a former slave who lived with his wife near the pond. He grew apples, and the trees are still rumored to be somewhere in the woods, occasionally producing. Brister, in his freedom, refused to work for the pittance from the residents of Concord. His wife, Fenda, was described as a pleasant fortune teller to all who needed her, but she would die of malnutrition. As charming as Henry David Thoreau's Beanfield is when you see it, you cannot survive indefinitely on beans alone, especially in a New England winter. The life of Fenda Freeman sheds light on this. 
These are just a few of the names of many former and fugitive slaves who lived before, during, and after Henry David Thoreau. But should you wander the woods today, you'll find a bench dedicated in Brister and Fenda Freeman's name and a few stones where their house might have been. Much of the woods is like this. If you go off trail, you'll stumble into a pile of old stones, no marker, no indication of whose they were, overgrown, just stones, barely a trace left of the communities who struggled mightily to live there. And yet more than half a million visitors see the foundation of Thoreau's cabin, a plot of his bean field, and a reproduction of his cabin every year. I hear this and I realize that even in the most progressive ideologies in the history of our nation and the transcendentalists were for their time, there is so much hidden history, erased history, and history buried intentionally or by neglect. These snippets of black history intersecting with our transcendentalist history are but a moment, one that many of us were never taught or it's easily overlooked. And we haven't even started talking about the black transcendentalists who lived in Concord itself. We often just hear about Emerson, Thoreau, and Alcott. Does knowing this make me despise Henry David Thoreau? No, it, it doesn't. But what an apt image of a privileged, privileged life. In some ways, he knew it too in his writings, remarking about the difficult lives of the people he knew about and his relative ease with fronting the essential facts of life. Many people today front only the essential facts of life, and it is a struggle. So what does Concord, Massachusetts have to do with Lexington, Kentucky? What does Walden Pond have to do with the bluegrass, the transcendentalists with who we are today? We could leave the answer to, not much, call it a day, be done. We could take the few tidbits of information about real life at Walden Pond and say, oh, they were interesting. Maybe we already knew them. I believe knowing this about our history is deeply enriching. And let's be clear, this isn't just Unitarian Universalist history, it's American history. The transcendentalists were arguably the first significant homegrown philosophical and cultural movement in the United States. One that laid the foundations for our ethics of individuality, reason, freedom, questioning authority, and so on. And I would argue that some of the same things we lament today about our culture come to us from the transcendentalists. It doesn't mean that we, as their spiritual inheritors, are bad or to blame. It just adds an extra layer to contemplate. But that itself gets at the so what of this history we've explored. It adds another layer to consider. And that is what is unfolding in our time right now, today. It didn't start recently. It's always been a piece of any critical examination of our history. One small but impactful example of this that touches nearly every generation in this room is Howard Zinn's landmark book, People's History of the United States. It's a complex book with complex reactions, but one of the primary motivations is quite simple, to peel back the mythology of our history, to look at American history with its grandiose, almost religious mythos, and to look at the reality, often a reality we might not want to look at. 
You can find examples of this throughout time. In our own time, we see this with peeling back the history of Confederate monuments, segregation, voting rights, and so on. And the reactions are often the same as they are in times before and times they are yet to come. Why do we need to talk about this now? Or why all of a sudden is that statue of John Breckenridge at the Lexington Courthouse a bad thing? Or what is all of this about reparations, land acknowledgments? Is this too politically correct or too woke? The examples can keep going and surely you have your own from your own life experience. If you lived through Vietnam or Korea, had parents or loved ones in either world war, experienced first, second, third, or fourth wave feminism, the Mattachine Society or the Stonewall Riots, MLK's Poor People's Campaign, the fight again for reproductive health care, and any other movement for freedom and rights. And it's not just these grander examples, though. The ones that land on the news that are cultural touchstones or even in history books, it can be looking at a romanticized philosophical movement that's impacted our culture and saying, ah, here too, we find it's more complex than we imagined. Howard Zinn gives us a suggestion for how to deal with this. You heard the words earlier. He writes, what we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we only see the worst, it destroys. If we remember where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act. And if we do act, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. He continues, the future is an infinite succession of presence and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. We can look at this and say, well, everything is tainted by this country's history with race, racism, and other evils. We can throw transcendentalism and Walden Pond out the window. Now, if we spent our days noting everything that is wrong and only what is wrong, we'd have little left to live by. But Zinn uses a great word there, complex. And I feel that has to do with a lot with where we are today as a culture right now, a low threshold for complexity. But it's all complex. Israel and Palestine is not simple. It is not an either-or conversation. Racism is not simple. The history of this country is not simple. The legacy and history of Unitarian Universalism, not simple. Your life, not simple. Making room for complexity gives life if we let it. Sometimes it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It'll give us a life in a heavy, burdensome way, but it is still life. And knowing that Henry David Thoreau was just another person living down at a pond and not a revolutionary gives life to the story for me. It tears down the myth and leaves us with a human story, a story that can still change us. One that recognized the difficulty of his experiment. He acknowledged that. Thoreau, in his way, in his time, acknowledged that what he was doing was only possible because of who he was and what he looked like. Now, does that make the inspiration of his words today any less impactful? That's, that's really up to you to decide as you experience them. But what it does do is add another layer of meaning. 
it adds something important to our Unitarian Universalist history. And armed with that knowledge, we can wallow in it and throw it all out, or we can stop waiting for some far-flung future that will never arrive and act in a way that creates a better present moment right now. This is only a small piece of black history as we kick off Black History Month. Just a small piece. The stories of those freed and fugitive slaves living at Walden Pond before, during, and after Thoreau. A small piece to a vast and wide and powerful history in our country. A history that, like the story about Walden Pond, is often still hidden or left out entirely. That is the call for any of these days or months where we pause to celebrate and reflect history to deepen, to allow complexity to enrich our lives, but most importantly, to inspire us to live fuller lives and ensure those around us can and do as well. The problems we face as a culture, the evils of racism that still infect much of our world, the low threshold for complexity many people face or equally complex for, for equally complex and sometimes valid reasons, all of the other pressures and oppressions and so on are not fixed by awareness alone, though. But for us, right now, the awareness we can cultivate does matter, if only to create a more expansive and hopeful community, but with the further hope that each and every one of us carry it into our lives, our families, our friends. We Unitarian Universalists like to talk a lot about justice and equity. There's no but in that sentence. We do. It's true. We do that. We increasingly act on those words as a congregation, an opportunity for us as a community and in our lives that furthers the cause of equity and justice is to ensure those hidden or ignored stories are told. We can do that here. We have our own small piece of black history that remains to be told at UUCL. The land we are on right now is, was slaveholding land. We have the names of a handful of the slaves who lived, worked, and died right here. Some of our members have scratched the surface of discovering some of that story. Right across Manowar Boulevard, you can find the neglected cemetery for the farm that used to be here. Surely, some of those slaves are buried there. We have copies of the Richard Allen and his wife listing the names of slaves and willing them to family members or granting them freedom. I believe it's time to tell that story. We have a great origin story for this congregation in our land. How religious progressive Richard Allen, who preached religious tolerance for his time, built a house of worship for all just down the hill from us. How we, the Unitarian Universalists, were lucky enough to buy this land to continue that legacy. But like any good myth, peel back the layers and you get the humanity. You get the stories of members mortgaging their homes, ministries gone wrong, uncertain times where the church could have folded and no longer be here. And way back in the past, the stories of the indigenous peoples who resided in Kentucky, but even closer to home, the slaves that worked this land, owned by the very same man who preached religious tolerance and freedom, the man we named our farmhouse after. Is it good? Is it bad? I think it's time to let go of those two words. What it is time for us is to realize that we have a choice to act and not wait for some idyllic future. What will we do? 
How will we tell that story? How will we make it meaningful and lasting? Henry David Thoreau's famous line about sucking out the marrow of life is often interpreted to be about his journey of self-sufficiency and spiritual awakening. This is true. But if you know anything about bone marrow, I'm thinking about indigenous tribes in the Amazon where bone marrow is often seen as a dessert or a treat. You still have to break through blood and bone to get to the marrow of life. It's visceral. And it's really about reconnecting that head and heart, getting to the marrow of life. The marrow of life about who we are as a congregation, our history, the history around us, how we tell those stories, and how we choose to act now. The marrow of life. So too for us. So too for so many things in our world. That we can begin right here, right now, in this infinite present moment. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.